Um, it's, uh, it's lovely to see you. So we've been kind of rushing around this afternoon because there was a lunch group in here until one o'clock. You wouldn't know they've been here uh, because the guys were able to turn us around so quickly. But thank you. For, and obviously today is the day that you all arrived bang on one o'clock for the first time ever. So um, thank you. It's great. Great, great you're all so punctual. Um, and it's, it's lovely to have you all uh, with us. Um, this, is, uh, this is a couple of different things today. So today is the, the end of our... Um, our series in John that has been going on since uh, November time, uh, but it's also the end of a, a two-part, a two-week uh, event that we've been looking at uh, around the title of, of Real Life, and those of you who were here last week um, or who've, who've listened online will know that, that Jeremy Marshall was with us last week speaking about his, his life, speaking about uh, the the diagnosis that he had with, with terminal cancer and how his Christian faith um, and, and what he's been able to take from, from the Bible and from his, his relationship with God um, has really been the thing that has sustained him and has helped him to see that, that even though he is facing death, um, that he, he has experienced real life and he will go on to experience eternal life because of what Jesus Christ um, has done for him. Um, so, Today we're, we're following that up. We're following that up by looking at the, the last little section uh, from John chapter 4 and another story um, where someone is facing death um, and Jesus comes and, and speaks into that situation. So Sam's going to come and, and share with us um, in a minute. But just before he does that, I'm going to read the passage um, and then I'm going to pray for us. So we're, we're in John chapter 4 and we are looking at verses 46 down to 54. Um, and you'll find that on page 13 of those little, John, uh, those little John books. So this is John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when, it bega- when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. <coughs> Let me just pray, um, and then Sam will come and and, and share with us. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, we thank you that that even though it is thousands of years old, um, Lord, it is still completely relevant and totally alive. Lord, we thank you that it is not some dusty book uh, about the history of, of a people or the history of a man, but it is your living active word, your word that inspires, your word that changes, your word that brings life. And Lord, we pray that as we look at your word now, um, Lord, as Sam comes to share with us, you will speak through him. 
Lord, we pray that, that this will not be Sam's words, Lord, but it will be yours that speak to us. And Lord, we pray that you will, by your spirit, be working in our hearts. Um, Lord, help us to, to understand what we're hearing. Help us to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, and Lord, we pray you will just use it to encourage us, Lord. Use it to challenge us um, and send us out, Lord, today, equipped uh, to share your uh, incredible life-giving word everywhere that we go. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, just as I'm getting uh, set up here, um, I think we want to say thank you to the staff for turning around the, um, the space so quickly for us today. Um, they've done a really good job. And I think, um, I don't know whether you kind of make it your habit to kind of say thank you or anything to the staff as you're leaving. I'm sure we're all in a rush to get back to our workplaces, but maybe today that might be something you might like to uh, consider doing. Um, so you've got those little Gospels. Um, you want to keep those open, uh, if you would. And then you should have a handout that's just got a few very simple points uh, for us today. Um, last week, we, we had, as, uh, as, as Stephen said, Jeremy Marshall with us, which I think if you were here, you'll, you'll agree probably that that was a real privilege. Um, Jeremy Marshall worked uh, in the city of London for uh, 40 years or so as a banker uh, for Credit Suisse, and then uh, finally as the CEO of Hawes Bank, which is the, the oldest private bank in England, uh, I understand. So life, as you could expect for Jeremy, was, was pretty good. Uh, lots of money, uh, a successful career, uh, and a family, uh, a loving family. But that all changed on the 13th of June, 2015. Uh, Jeremy told us that that date is seared in his memory. Um, because that, on that day, he got a diagnosis of incurable cancer, and he was given 18 months to live. Uh, he said to us last week that that felt like he'd been punched in the face. Uh, he, he was very open about saying, wasn't he, that he didn't want to die. He's not particularly relishing the prospect of death. He's got a family uh, that he'll be leaving behind uh, when he does so. But that is real life, isn't it? It doesn't take much thinking to recognize that that's not a particularly unusual story in many ways. And in fact, Jeremy said to us last week, you know, that the death rate is 100%. Everyone that was here last week will uh, die. Um, the only certain thing in life is that we will face uh, death and taxes, although Jeremy caveated that by saying as a, as a Swiss banker, he'd managed to avoid one of those two things. Um, Jeremy was saying that his father described this life as a valley of tears. And in some ways, that's true, isn't it? We can, we can cover it up as much as we want, but the reality is that death and suffering and pain are, are only ever really just around the corner. Um, it was wonderful last week to see a number of people sort of queuing up, really, to speak to Jeremy afterwards. And, and you just realize how much there is, probably even in this room, of some of us will have friends, family, loved ones who either have died recently or perhaps are facing death. We don't like to think about this, uh, but at the end of the day, we can only kick the can down the, down the road for so long. You know, we all have that kind of Theresa May strategy, don't we, to, to death. We just sort of keep kicking it down the road. But... <laughs> One way or the other, the, the, the deadline will come. And so I guess this, this question about, about death, it's, it's, it's really an acid test for our beliefs, Jeremy was saying. It, it's really, the, you know, Jeremy had had a Christian faith for years, but when he got that diagnosis, do you really put all your hopes um, on, on what, what he was believing, the Christian faith? Where do you put your faith? Well, Jeremy last week shared with us his personal hope that that, that Jesus uh, promises to give him life. And he said, in fact, as he's, as he's wrestled with that diagnosis and, and, the, the, and the, faith, the imminent sort of threat of death, 
Um, he said that actually the word of Jesus has come alive to him in a new way. It's given him a new hope for the future. And I suppose our question this lunchtime is, well, is that just wishful thinking? That's a lovely thing, isn't it? And we could all perhaps feel like that's nice <coughs> for Jeremy. But is it true? Jeremy was encouraging us last week to say that that's actually the most important question. Not just is it useful, is it helpful, is it nice? But is it true? Can the Christian message give us genuine hope in the face of death? Well, one of the ways that we could uh, answer that question is by looking at some of the evidence that the Bible gives us for the claims of Jesus. And what you're holding in your hands, uh, those little Gospels, are designed to do exactly that. Uh, They tell us uh, a number of miracles that Jesus did, along with a lot of his teaching. Uh, Seven miracles, in fact, that that John calls signs. Uh, John is the person who wrote this this little gospel it's called. And and that life of Jesus is presented to us so that we can read it and see for ourselves uh, whether the claims of Jesus uh, stack up. Uh, So there's seven signs in that gospel, and we're going to look at one of them today to have a look at the evidence for ourselves. So John, in this story that we just read, uh, introduces us to a man who's a royal official, which I guess means he's probably a kind of a civil servant. Um, uh, So you can kind of... Imagine all sorts of kind of career choices and paths that, uh, that he might have made or, or what kind of character type this man would have been. Um, to be honest, we don't know loads about him, but he doesn't seem to be particularly religious. That's one thing you, you pick up from this. There's nothing about this that indicates that he's a particularly uh, zealous or church-going or synagogue-attending kind of a man. Um, we do know he was quite important. He had a number of servants, we find out later on in the story. <coughs> And one of the things that strike you is he seems to be quite an orderly man. Uh, he's very into his timekeeping. Uh, so perhaps he is like some of the servant, civil servants that, that we know. I don't know. Um, but most importantly, this man is a father whose son is facing death. And of course, that puts everything else in the shade, doesn't it? Well, this man hears that this miracle worker, Jesus, uh, has moved into a town 20 miles away. So fairly close by but still about two days, more or less, uh, of travel to get there, a day and a night, and then most of a day again. Well, this man has tried everything. His son is uh, facing death, and so he's desperate. And so he sets off to find Jesus. So this is a man who stared death in the face and went to Jesus. And I submit that that's actually a really reasonable thing to do, isn't it? You don't have to be a religious person to come to Jesus. You don't have to be um, specially interested in going to church or anything like that. This man does what I think all of us would have done in the circumstances. If you've got any hope, then you're going to go to this man and see if possibly he might be able to heal your son. So the man goes to town, uh, goes to Jesus' town, and he arrives there the next day at one o'clock in the afternoon, which I guess means we should imagine this as being the sort of the hottest part of the day. And so I think we should probably think of Jesus as resting at this point in the story, probably enjoying some shade. And the man comes to Jesus and he begs him, verse 47 there, to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now have a look there, uh, verse number 48, at Jesus' response. Jesus said to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, that doesn't seem like a very appropriate response, does it, to a man who's, who's got a son who's dying. Uh, firstly, this man um, 
probably isn't interested in a theological debate at this point about signs and wonders and, and belief. He, he's got an urgent need, and Jesus is sort of, uh, seems to be just going off on a tangent about signs and wonders and faith. But it also seems strange because surely this man does believe, right? He's come to Jesus. He wants help. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's a weird response, isn't it? What's going on? Well, I think uh, Jesus is suggesting that this man does obviously have some sort of faith in Jesus, but it's not really going deep enough. This man needs something more. So, and I think the clue is in what the man asked Jesus to do. Uh, just have a look, verse 47. He, asks the man, he asked Jesus to come down and heal his son. And you see there, verse 49, same thing again. Sir, come down before my child dies. This man is assuming that Jesus has to come with him 20 miles to go and heal his son. And that's showing that he doesn't really understand who Jesus is. He's seeing Jesus as possibly a good miracle worker. But John has told us, and we've seen this uh, for those of us who have been here over the past few weeks, that John is very clear that Jesus is claiming to be much more than a good man, much more than a miracle worker. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son so that we might not perish but have eternal life. But this man doesn't seem to see that. He doesn't seem to see that God's own Son is standing before him. And so Jesus is saying, well, you don't, you don't really believe. Well, the man doesn't have time for all these theological debates. He, he just implores Jesus again, Sir, verse 49, come down before my child dies. And see how Jesus responds now a second time. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Well, <laughs> Jesus presents this man, I think, with a, quite an agonizing choice. Just put yourself in the shoes of this man. You've got a son that you've left at home dying. You have come 20 miles in the hour of greatest need to come and see Jesus. And Jesus has told you, go back home again. With, with empty hands, with no Jesus. So what are you going to do? You, you're going to have to work out whether you're being fobbed off, whether Jesus really just can't be bothered to come with you because it's so hot. Are you going to have to work out if you actually trust this man and believe that he can actually save your son? And of course, Jesus is doing this in order to teach this man something about himself, isn't he? He's refusing to come with the man so that the man learns who Jesus really is. Jesus is trying to show this man that he doesn't need to be physically present in order to heal. He can heal simply by speaking, and 20 miles away, things will change. Um, and I think this is encouraging for us, particularly if we are uh, feeling like we're walking through that valley of tears at the moment. Uh, Jeremy said last week that God often does his best work in storms, because in storms he has our attention. I thought that was a very helpful comment. You know, we can sail through life, and when it's easy, we don't really think about God. But when the boat is rocking and the waves are coming in, that's the moment that we can uh, focus on God. And perhaps uh, you're here and you're, you're struggling, and you don't know why you're going through this valley of tears. Well, perhaps it could be that actually Jesus is allowing that to happen, and he's, uh, he's wanting to produce a bigger purpose. Perhaps he's <laughs> wanting to help you to get to know who he is at a deeper level. Well, amazingly, uh, have a look at the man's response. Second half of verse 50. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. I think this is quite mysterious, really, isn't it? Why does this man believe this? Why does he uh, turn back and go away again? But very clearly, we've got a man who stares Jesus in the face and believes in Jesus' word. He doesn't try and drag Jesus with him. He doesn't try and negotiate with Jesus. He just turns around and begins his two-day journey back again in the heat of the day to go and see his son. This man believes Jesus' bare promise, your son will live. So I want to suggest to you that he goes back a changed man, a different kind of man, a man with a deeper faith in Jesus. One commentator says, with a single command, Jesus heals two souls. He heals the boy and he heals the father simply by saying, go, your son will live. And so this man goes back with this word sustaining him. You can imagine him repeating it to himself as he does that two-day trek in the heat of the day, overnight, and then the next morning. Your son will live. Your son will live. And of course, this, this really raises this question, doesn't it? Is this just wishful thinking? Well, as the man approaches his home, he sees his servants coming towards him, and that can only mean news, one way or the other. And wonderfully, it is good news. Verse 51, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Well, you can imagine the relief. You can imagine the joy. You can imagine the thanksgiving. You can imagine the hugs that must have taken place. But John doesn't tell us anything about that. Have a look at what he does tell us. Verse 52. The official asked his servants the hour when his son began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's one o'clock in the afternoon. The very moment when 20 miles away, Jesus had said, go, your son will live. And so verse uh, 53 the, man, the, the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. So this is a man who stared death in the face and goes to Jesus. It's a man who stares Jesus in the face and believes his word. And it's a man who saw his son's face again and believed in Jesus. Not now just as a man who can kind of heal us, uh, who can kind of... Uh, uh, even give us physical life, but as the Son of God, who can give us eternal life. So I want to suggest this, this isn't wishful thinking. Um, we too can know this to be true. Uh, the Bible says, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Is that wishful thinking? Have a look at the evidence. What do you think? This person says your son will live, and he does. And of course, the supreme evidence is found in the end of John's Gospel as Jesus dies himself and three days later rises again. But of course, we don't see much of that, do we? I can't show you here today the risen Jesus. I, I can't kind of uh, point out his wounds where, where, he, where he died. In a way, we're a lot like that official, aren't we? As he comes to Jesus in the middle of the day, 
And here's this promise from Jesus, go, your son will live. And, and we have to decide whether we can trust that promise for ourselves. What we see is the reality of death. We see our friends and our loved ones being lowered into the ground. And we don't see them rising again in glory yet. We go into a future that is uncertain and we don't know where we're going. And so we too, like this official, have to cling on to this promise. Go, your son will live. And friends, there is every reason to think that the one who spoke that promise is still alive today. He is still speaking and he is somebody who can heal us and give us life without even physically being here because he is the son of God. So friends, we can go from here changed this lunchtime. We can go taking this word in, with us in our hearts and we can go with life in our souls. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. So the invitation for us this lunchtime is to go and live because Jesus lives. Can I lead us in a uh, short prayer? Dear Father God in heaven, we thank you for uh, the time that we've had together this lunchtime. Thank you for the food that we've been able to enjoy. And we thank you for the chance to be able to open up this story in John's Gospel and to read about what happened many years ago and to take from it some lessons for what might still be happening today. Father, we pray that you'll send us back into our workplaces this afternoon with this promise in our hearts and with life in our souls. We pray that we will go trusting that we too can live through Jesus' word. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, if you've got your handouts there, um, I want to just recommend a few things that you might want to do. As, um, as Stephen says, this is the end of our, um, of our series in John's Gospel that we've been doing for, for quite a while now. And it might be that if any of this is kind of new to you or, or uh, want something that you're want, wanting to think about further, you might like to take one of these John's Gospels away with you as a kind of a gift from us and, and either read it just for yourself. I'd encourage you to do that. Or if you wanted to, you could actually listen along as you're reading to uh, our talks through uh, John's Gospel. Uh, we've covered the first four chapters of John's Gospel, which is about pages one to six, is it? One to seven in, in your little Gospels. Uh, so you can go along and, uh, and listen to those, and you'll find a variety of speakers from different churches, but hopefully all of us are committed to opening up uh, what John's Gospel has to say and helping us understand it. So that's one way you could kind of keep looking into this. Another way is you could um, maybe have a look at um, reading John's Gospel yourself and use some of these uh, study notes to help guide you. Uh, some of us have been using these over the past few weeks and we found them uh, very helpful. Um, so you can either do that by yourself, you can kind of order these online and have a look at them yourself, uh, or you might want to do that with a, with a, with a Christian friend. And um, there's people here on the, on the leadership team who'd be happy to to do that with you. There's other people who have been uh, learning how to do that. Or it may be that if you come with a, um, a colleague today, they might be interested in doing that as well. And you could put them on the spot and invite them to, to do that with you. So if you're interested in doing that, um, email us at, at gospelinthecity at gmail.com and we can tell you how to get hold of those resources. And then finally, we've got a new series starting next week 
And Stephen, I promised that if we had a little bit of extra time at the end, you could come and tell us about that series. <laughs> I, I said that we wouldn't have very much time, but we do have a little bit of time. So Stephen, give us, come and give us one minute on, um, on what we're doing over the next few weeks. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Stephen can talk for hours about this, honestly. Um, yeah, so uh, we are going to be doing a four-week series, um, and we're going to be looking. So who, who's familiar with the story of Joseph? I imagine those of you who haven't put your hand up just didn't want to put your hand up. Um, so I don't know what you, what you think of when you think of the story of Joseph. I don't know whether you get, uh, you know, you think of the, the Technicolor Dreamcoat or you see Philip Schofield uh, singing. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to start singing that song because it'll be in my head all day. Um, but one amazing thing about Joseph is that in the story of Joseph, we see Joseph's life. But we actually don't see. So in a lot of those other stories where you see people sort of living out this life, you see them interacting with God. We never actually see Joseph in any way interact with God. We don't know what his devotional life was like. We don't know what his prayer life was like. But what we do see with the story of Joseph is what that looked like in reality. We see Joseph the same way as Potiphar or Pharaoh or the people. We see the results of Joseph's faith. And so as people who are out in Belfast, in your workplaces, living out your faith, people may never see your prayer life. They may never see your devotional life. They may never see you at church. But what they will see is the results of the faith that you have. They will see that lived out through you. And so we're going to look at the story of Joseph. We're going to really focus in on Joseph at work. So we see Joseph in Potiphar's house in, uh, as a slave in a, a down and out job just struggling away. We see him as he copes with promotion to the highest role in the land. And then we see how he copes with success as a boss, as the prime minister of the whole, the whole of Egypt. Um, so we see lots in the story of Joseph about how Joseph copes with work, how Joseph lives out his faith in different ways, in different types of work. And we're going to just very briefly have a look at a few little snippets. We're not going to look at the whole story of Joseph. We're really going to focus in on, on Joseph as a worker, and the different types of work that he does, and what that might have to say to us as people who, who work and who live um, and who want to share their faith with others. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. <laughs>